Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. Ed, what did you think of Hobo with a Shotgun? Uh, not much. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I did, um, I wanted to really enjoy it. And as someone who can appreciate high camp, you know, so bad it's good, you know, I, I thought that this thing did have the potential to be a real winner. But in the end, I just kind of found it to be kind of, just kind of all over the place and like, some of the logistics of the universe within which the film is set were kind of uh, hard to nail down. This is a minor nitpick, but the color grade was uh, all was, over was, the was, and, and it was just was like nails on a chalkboard for yeah. the eyes. You know, I have a lot of experience dealing with student films, both from when I was a film school student having to make my own films and then the occasional film student I now meet who wants me to watch and judge their films. I think that's a pain we can both sympathize right we've been in those shoes each of us and the whole of hobo with a shotgun reeked of a student film done on a large budget at a much longer length than it can possibly tolerate and that was a disappointment for me because the trailer included in the grindhouse spectacular (laughs) yeah back in 2005 was so very good the streets gave birth to a stray dog who is now fed up a two-minute trailer is a great hobo with a shotgun. Yeah. And maybe a 20-minute hobo with a shotgun would be worth doing, perhaps even 30 or 40 minutes. But a movie that weighs in at 86 minutes? No, no, no. Yeah. It's too much movie. Tell me about Grindhouse and refresh me. Well, so it started out because Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, who are buddies, um, I think they buddied up on Four Rooms, I'm not sure, which I know a lot of people don't like, but I think is a very enjoyable film. I've had a real bad night. They came up with this crazy idea to replicate... Of the cinematic experience of their youth in the 70s that they treasured so much when grindhouse theaters were a thing that's sort of something that probably lost to society today because everything is a 18 screen Googleplex with Dolby and the RPX seats that move and all this kind of stuff. But so they wanted to create a double features you don't get anymore. So they wanted to do a double feature with like fake trailers and commercials and stuff like that to simulate the grindhouse theatrical experience from the 1970s to the point where they even deliberately cut an entire reel out of each of their respective films that are in there as to, you know, the damaged prints and all this kind of stuff. And there were a number of fake trailers uh, in the film. Uh, There was uh, Don't by Edgar Wright. There was Machete by Robert Rodriguez, which ended up becoming its own film down the road. The the Nazi werewolf women of the SS or whatever by Rob Zombie, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is the best thing Rob Zombie's ever done. And then uh, there was there was this. Hobo with a shotgun. Rated R. 
every time I saw the film in theaters, once Planet Terror ended, half of the theater got up and left. I couldn't tell if that was because they were uh, they were sickened by what they had just sat through or if they just didn't understand there was another movie coming. Yeah. And so it ended up being sort of a blight on both of their careers. And it's very long when you put all that material together. I remember it, it clocking in well over three hours. Yeah. Which I recall enjoying my three-hour experience. Absolutely. Because I was in on what was going to go mm -hmm. on and that it was a return to a kind of barely remembered youthful experience because I was too young to truly go to the grindhouses. Right. However, it was talked about around me by the older kids I admired or some of the adults who had that low sensitivity, which, right. which I now respond to strongly. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and many of the films have kind of survived and gone on to be kind of, you know, cult favorites. But, and I know in my personal DVD collection, I've got a Planet Terror volume and I've got a Death Proof volume mm. in separate cuts mm. because they were distributed distinctly from and broken into pieces. I yeah. have never rewatched the whole Grindhouse experience the way it was intended, including these false trailers which turned into these kind of interesting movies. Mm -hmm. He knows the score. Yeah, ever since Blade Runner, I've been a Rutger Hauer guy. Mm -hmm. He's he's in my pocket of like Euro people I'm going to go for. And right. there he is being yeah. bonkers. And so I felt once Machete found a market and it did and, and so on, it would be quick on its heels. And then that was the same year that I had a second child. I was a shut-in for a while. My life was just in disarray. So it just it just passed right through me before I could really pay attention. Right. So when we were pitching one another about things that we ought to catch up to and talk about together, I was really pleased to learn you hadn't seen it either <laughs> because that gave us an opportunity to watch something fresh, which is how we arrive at this scintillating conversation yeah. about a movie it sounds like we both don't really like at all. <laughs> <laughs> so what else about the movie irritates you? Where and when is this taking place? Yeah, I, I, I know. I know it's a Canadian film, and there was some indications in the film that it was supposed to be in Canada. But the film starts with a a, a, a guy who could be a stunt double for Danny McBride. Uh, <laughs> you know, with like a somehow yeah. they've got a manhole cover, right. Completely like sealed. You know, there's no like welding lines, on it, but somehow his head is sticking through a manhole cover. Sons of the Drake chase him where he falls down and uh, an open manhole that just taken the cover off and they behead this guy in front of a whole neighborhood full of people. I didn't get the idea. I kept calling this movie Hobo Cop. It's this dystopian world in which Crime has taken over, you know, maybe the police have been privatized. They don't get into that, but certainly the police are complicit, as we see. They didn't push that hard enough for me to buy the dystopian thing. And then, like, you know, there's the there was a, a moment where it's like, oh, like, we got to fight back. Like, the citizens need to kind of fight back against this. But let me frame it with my own words, that we are in a parallel present where Hobo Cop Shows up to try to remake his life and realizes that he can't. That's Rutger Hauer's character. He can't because there is a criminal kingpin called the Drake. Right. Who lords over this city with these ne'er-do-well sons of his. They're all doofuses. And the Drake is overtly cruel and so are they. And they murder people wholesale constantly. Particularly at this club they run where they both sell drugs. Right. They also encourage the youth to come in and play video games. Right. They seem to run a strip club and... 
They do a murder club where you can string people up and then beat them to death right. or whatever. All this is in the same building. And with impunity, no less. Apparently. There's a police force that they've got under payroll, you assume. There's no outside authority figure. And everybody around town knows that this is the condition of their life. And nobody does anything about it, including leave. You're left with the impression that you've walked into Dalton's Roadhouse. Where there are also only about eight or ten people. And they're all angry at each other, doing terrible things. And there's no bigger world than that. And why they don't just simply walk away? Because after all, the hobo rides into town on a train. Right. But for some reason, he chooses to stick around. So that's an inconsistency that makes no sense whatsoever. The Drake has this criminal underworld where every single day they're murdering people who are from the local community, including other hobos. Okay, that could happen for a while, I guess. But you'll run out of bodies eventually. Sure. If literally every day you're killing people as entertainment for other people, you've got to have millions of people. And this does not look like a very big city. Yeah. And, yeah, and I don't get the sense that there's you know a large influx of new residents <laughs> yeah. all the time to, to keep the supply fresh. And there is a detail about there being school children that the Drake's sons barbecue to death inside of their school bus. (laughs) So it's possible to summarize what the plot of Hobo with a shotgun is, but there's no reason to do so. It's an excuse to watch a now deeply aged Rugger Hauer do violence in all kinds of crazy ways. And sometimes that works. So let's flip the script. What are the moments in this that really work? (laughs) (laughs) One of the sons of the Drake, I don't know which one, if it's, uh, I don't remember if it's if Slick, it's Slick or, Ivan. or Ivan. One of them looks like there's a guy who sort of has achieved a little bit of YouTube popularity recently. He's a Tom Cruise impersonator. Oh, I can see what you mean. Hi, I'm Tom Cruise auditioning for the role of Eddie Cullen. This is the last time you'll ever see me. <laughs> burning the children alive on the yeah. bus for example uh got a chuckle out of me because <laughs> because we're cruel bastards yeah, right you know and it's, <laughs> it's like I, you know i do kind of appreciate um you know I, I like a film that's provocative i like i like a film that likes to you know sort of plunge its knife into the audience and kind of twist it and 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 okay so we were talking about sort of the amateurishness of this I don't know how to describe the, the the gonzo nature of the way this thing was kind of shot, uh, uh, like a, a lot of the the angles and the and the camera moves. There's a lot and of stuff. canting and a lot of uh, low angle shots, right? Where the movie, the camera swings into an actor and it gives this funny little juice of energy. I I like that when I see it because yeah. it, it does give me that ring of excitement. Right. It reminded me a bunch of the two films that I think sort of made that an art form, and that's Crank and Crank High Voltage. Two of the most underappreciated films of, of all like of all times, uh, critically speaking. You don't go to a movie like this to see anything that's serious or that it's intended to elevate the spirit. You're here to watch terrible stuff and get some fun out of it. Yeah. Now, there are a couple sequences that do that for me. Let me highlight them and see if you agree. In the opening kill, which is the manhole beheading of the Drake's brother, there's a geyser of blood. And the instant that happens, this woman, woman who's is- dressed in a white bikini <laughs> starts to writhe over it yeah. like, it's a, like it's a sexual fountain. Right. I thought, now, now that they know what they're up to. Yeah. I thought, great. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Although I couldn't get over the unhygienic nature of... <laughs> You don't know what this guy had. (laughs) 
You know, I hope you're going straight to get a tetanus shot. Exactly, right after you're done your strip tease and his geyser of blood. <laughs> the next detail that comes to mind is towards the end of the piece, our hobo befriends a hooker with a heart of gold named Abby. Abby can hardly act her way out of anything, and I do mean that as a demerit for the actress Molly Dunsworth. She is, by circumstances, forced to push her hand through an active lawnmower, which strips her, degloves her arm, yeah. leaving the bone, which she uses to impale a bad guy. Now, that is grindhouse, yeah, yeah, baby. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Terrific. I, I laughed in my living room. I had headphones on so nobody would hear what I was listening to, and I thought that was just terrific. Yeah. Uh, uh, I w- once again, I couldn't imagine the agony that one would have <laughs> felt using your hemorrhaging stump as right. as, a, as a as a you know a, a weapon of force like that. But uh, yeah, that that was that was that was that was pretty brilliant. But sometimes when that kind of crazy violence jumps off, even in something that's clearly as exploitative as this is intending to be, I do want to sense that there is a, a, a realistic investment and impact on the person receiving that kind of injury. And the reason why this movie screws it up is there's so much blood gushing out of the hobo's body at various points. There should be consequences. Right. There should when, be real, real consequences. And I say that as a person who's very rarely mixed it up physically with others. And at my current age, if somebody were to punch me, I'm sure I would just have a vagal reaction, drop out and be, be unconscious for a half hour or right. more. As a younger person, I might have said, oh, I could take some punishment. But let's be serious. There's a sequence when our hobo is, uh, he's beat up, he's stabbed, and then he's beat up some more with a, <laughs> a razor-sharpened ice skate attached to a bludgeon. He just puts on his flannel and goes about his business. Right. And these aren't things that I can accept. And at this point in time, Rudger Hauer is a guy, I think, deep in his 60s. Now, I'm not saying that a movie has to be absolutely realistic because that's not what these movies are about. But the emotional realism that I want to invest in is feeling like the punishment is going to put somebody down. Right. Or that time has to has to stretch. Right. You have to go you have into to hibernation for a while, which is often how exploitation movies work. Somebody receives a terrible beating. They go off into the woods. They eat berries for three months and train. Right. And they come back they and come, beat at the bad yeah. guy. That's not how this movie works. It happens in about two days of screen time. Yeah. Which is Hobo meets Abby. He convinces her they ought to start a new life together. He wants to have a lawn mowing service and he wants her to be a teacher. And then they have to go kill the Drake and all his minions. Yeah. And that's it. That's the movie. Yeah. I didn't exactly buy, like, the desire for revenge either. I, why was he so motivated to try to intervene? I, I got to imagine a, a true hobo who has traveled the, <laughs> the world. The true hobo like, with a shotgun. You know, he must have seen all of society's ills, like, all the time. Is Abby the first prostitute he's ever met? Right. Why is he so, you know... Is the Drake the first kingpin he's ever met? Is right. Is this the first set of crooked cops he's ever met? Right. Is this the first time he's ever seen a lawnmower for sale at a pawn shop? Yeah. Why a lawnmower? There's no backstory to this guy. Right. And in some ways, that's Rambo-like. You get the backstory yeah. on Rambo, and that's how you wind up on Rambo's side. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you were just expected to be on Hobo Cop's side here. Now, now I'm, I'm usefully aware of the literature enough to know that homelessness often coincides with mental illness and disorder of various sorts and various addiction problems. We don't have the picture 
that our hobo has substance abuse troubles. We get glimmers in some of his monologues that he might be a bit cray-cray. Right. Perhaps the most notable one is when he goes to talk to some children. People look at you and think of how wonderful your future will be. They want you to be something special, like a, a doctor or a lawyer. I hate to tell you this, but if you grow up here, you're more likely to wind up selling your bodies on the streets or shooting dope from dirty needles in a bus stop. The writer of the movie, John Davies, was having a little bit of fun with the director, Jason Eisner, trying to figure out how to make this character into something more serious. Mm. And that is this big speech he delivers about... The bear is a solitary animal. They like their space. They live in a magic circle. They don't mind if you're like a mile away, but if you would get inside their circle, they would maul you. And this, this was just the residue of some good ideas that went really kind of nowhere. Yeah, I found myself towards the end kind of checking my watch. This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop boopity doo.